0: Madam President, it's been a long, tough, and winding road. But at last, at last, we have arrived. I know it's been a long day and a long night, but we've gotten it done. Today, after more than a year of hard work, the Senate is making history. I am confident the Inflation Reduction Act will endure as one of the defining legislative feats of the 21st century.
1: After about 15 months from when President Biden initially unveiled his domestic economic programs, the Senate finally passed a roughly $700 billion climate, energy, tax, and healthcare bill that will reshape key sectors of the American economy, do more to decarbonize the American economy than any other bill passed in the U.S. history, and make uh, enormous changes to other key parts of the country.
2: That's Jeff Stein. He's the White House economics reporter. He says that this landmark legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, is expected to pass the House this week. Then President Biden will sign it into law. Jeff says this bill is a huge deal. But for Democrats, it's also kind of a disappointment.
1: When this process started, Democrats were hoping that they would be on the cusp of entering a sort of New Deal-style era in which we would change fundamental parts um, of the country's economy and social fabric. Those aspirations really were not fulfilled.
2: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 10th. Today, we go deep on the Inflation Reduction Act, what it does, and how it will impact climate, energy, and healthcare in the U.S. for years to come. But we'll also hear about what's not in the bill and why it took us so long to get here. To explain all of this, Jeff talked to my colleague, Alahe Izadi.
3: Okay, let's dive in. First of all, how much will this all
0: cost?
1: We haven't gotten the final numbers as of this recording, but our sense is that the bill includes about 400 billion dollars of new spending and roughly 700 billion dollars of new tax increases and other new forms of revenue. Democrats are intent on showing that they're the fiscally serious party, the fiscally responsible party, so the bill will bring down the deficit both, you know, in the next 10 years and and longer term beyond that. So in the sense the, you know, the bill will bring in more money to the federal government uh, than it costs. That said, you know, the new taxes will fall on businesses, you know, corporations with over $1 billion in annual income and on um, many American, uh, you know, rich rich taxpayers through higher enforcement uh, at the IRS.
3: So the bill is being paid for by these, you know, additional taxes on wealthier corporations and individuals. Jeff, can you walk me through where this money is going?
1: Let's take the climate and energy part of this first. There's really two key buckets that are important to think of when you think of the climate program in this bill. One is a series of direct business subsidies, $240 billion, to make it more economically advantageous for companies to invest in all kinds of different renewable energies, for utilities to do it. There's dozens of changes that are really intent on sparking private business and um, financial deployment of, of renewable energy. The second big bucket that I think is important for people to wrap their heads around is roughly $80 billion in, in consumer-facing credits. So that's money for um, heat pumps, which are a more energy-efficient way of heating and cooling your home.
3: We're going to save American families hundreds of dollars a year on paying their energy bills by allowing them to have money to invest by getting allowing them to put in new windows and doors and solar
1: panels and the like, and get tax credits for that. Billions of dollars for electric vehicles so people can buy, you know, a more energy-efficient cars, money to in- incentivize you to put a solar panel on top of your home, to insulate your home. There's thousands of dollars per household available in tax rebates uh, for that as well.
3: In that second bucket that you're describing, the consumer-facing one with the tax credits aimed at people who want to, you know, like install heat pumps or solar panels. Let's say I want to do that. Like, I want to get a solar panel and I want to get that new tax credit. When would I be eligible for that?
1: Some of them are actually retroactive. So for heat pumps, solar and battery storage for your home, my understanding is that if you go out and buy it now, you will be able to later write that off on your tax return, even though the bill hasn't passed yet. We're still expecting it to pass, and that means that you will be able to retroactively claim that. For other benefits, they don't really kick in until next year. The electric vehicle credits, for instance, will not be redeemable under the way the bill is structured until next year. But there are really big changes to to the EV system here two most important changes to EVs that we should really focus on. One, people will be able to get their money, their their rebate, at the point at which they're buying the car rather than having to wait to put it on their tax returns. They can get that discount right away.
3: Oh, wow. So like if I go out and get a Tesla, you know, like if I could get a Tesla, I would get that tax credit immediately when I buy it.
1: Correct. Correct. And then the second big change right now is that companies like Tesla and GM have a cap on how much that they can claim the credit when they're selling the EV. And those companies have breached that cap years ago. So they're well beyond what they could continue to offer those credits. This bill crucially repeals that cap, which means that all these firms – All these, you know, the ones that you alluded to, Tesla and and other uh, electric car makers, will be able to, again, claim that credit. So that's a really, really big change. There's a lot of complications with the EV system because, in part, we're already, you know, surpassing supply. Demand is outstripping supply. So there's this question of, can, even with the supercharged demand, will that lead simply the price of the EV to go up because it's going to be so hard to get with so much supercharged demand and the automakers have all the leverage? A lot of the people I've spoken to, the climate experts, are very optimistic that because the bill makes these credits permanent and extends them for a long duration, it will incentivize the electric car makers to really scale up production in a way that could be genuinely super transformative. I would just add, even within the energy section, there's a lot of provisions that climate experts and particularly native groups are worried about. This proposed legislation includes a huge giveaway to the fossil fuel industry. Democrats tried really hard to get Senator Joe Manchin, who comes from a heavy coal producing, natural gas producing state of West Virginia on board. And to do that, they had to include a lot of things that the environmentalists do not want. Under this legislation, the fossil fuel industry will receive billions of dollars in new tax breaks and subsidies over the next 10 years, on top of the $15 billion in tax breaks and corporate welfare that they are already receiving. In exchange for this bill that Manchin has now voted through the Senate, Democratic leaders in the White House have agreed to support a separate piece of legislation that, that Manchin was promised will move in the next few few weeks or months that is centered around permitting reform. And permitting reform sounds really dry and technical, but what it essentially means is that companies and fossil fuel projects will be able to dramatically scale up um, the speed at which they build new projects, so a new pipeline, a new oil rig. That can be done much more quickly under this deal if it's reached. This permitting reform, you know, there's, there's huge complaints from industry that because of bureaucracy, it's really, really hard to like move a pipeline from design to implementation because there's so many points along the way in which different government groups and agencies can object. This bill would attempt to dramatically change that by expediting the process of building very fast. Some of the renewable energy folks are saying, actually, that might be good for us, too, because we can build out clean energy projects faster than we can otherwise. A lot of Democrats are going to be very skeptical of that. But there was a promise, a commitment made by the White House, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to Manchin to get this done. And so that's like kind of the last thing hanging out there that we'll have to see how it unfolds after this bill passes.
3: Yeah, but doesn't that promise, you know, like what was promised to Manchin, sort of undo what this bill is attempting to accomplish with climate change?
1: No, I mean it's that's like the core of of the debate happening right now in the climate community. Most of the climate experts I speak to think overwhelmingly that that the downside of the permitting reform and the other provisions that that the oil companies are happy about are vastly dwarfed by the climate impact of these renewable credits and the and the consumer subsidies. Again, the climate impact from most of the people I talk to, there's differences of opinion from smart people who are trying their best to figure this out. But overwhelmingly people think this will lead to a net net drop significantly in emissions.
3: Yeah, and it's just perhaps we're seeing a very particular example of the types of compromises required to move such a massive piece of legislation across the finish line. Because I remember for so long, it felt like Manchin was pretty much the roadblock to any of this coming about. He was on CNN this past weekend talking about why he decided to switch his vote.
1: Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia joins us now to discuss. Uh, Senator, thanks so much for joining us. So 16 days ago, you said you wanted, Thanks for having me, Jake. You said 16 days ago, you said you wanted to wait to pass any major legislation because of what you called an alarming new 9.1 percent inflation rate. Inflation has not gone down in those 16 days. What changed your mind? Well, Jake, basically what changed our mind, Chuck, uh, we re-engaged. I, to Chuck's credit, we start setting down. Our, our uh, staffs kept talking through. I never did walk away. But we re- re- uh, reorganized the bill, if you will. And it seems like this was the way
3: they were able to get him on board.
1: In addition to the permitting reform and the other sort of giveaways for the fossil fuel companies, Democrats had to make the enormous sacrifice in this bill of dropping all of the White House's proposed changes to the social safety net. For decades, Democrats have clamored for change, for housing, for health care, for child care support for mothers and and parents, and the child tax credit that reduced child poverty by over 50 percent that then expired last year. All of the social programs including dozens of provisions that people don't really even think about, were completely stripped out of this bill. I wrote a story last fall about a relatively little-known provision in the bill that would deal with public housing. America has some of the most decaying public housing in the developed world. We built a lot of it and then stopped investing in it, and it's primarily people of color and poor people in inner cities living in atrocious conditions, cockroaches and mice and decaying roofs and it's just a horrendous scene and i visited some of them and for years they've been saying they need an investment to repair these conditions democrats initial bill had 80 billion dollars for public housing it was a relatively small provision but as part of this deal to get mansion on board that was stripped out and so i've been thinking a little bit about some of the people i met when visiting public housing in new york as part of reporting on this who are now in the the prospect of looking at another, who knows, decade more before they even have the chance of fixing some of these really serious um, capital maintenance issues um, that are just a devastating quality of life problem.
3: I want to talk about some of the other parts of this bill beyond climate change. Let's start with healthcare. I've heard a lot of Democrats talk about what this legislation will do to drug prices. Can you talk us through what this bill does on healthcare and what did not make it into the bill regarding health care.
1: For Democrats' perspective, the thing that they're most proud of is allowing Medicare to negotiate the price of prescription drugs. That provision will take a couple of years to take effect, but it's an attempt to deal with tremendous outrage among seniors that... The cost of prescription drugs has just continued to rise. The provision will both save the federal government money because Medicare will spend less on the drugs and it will re- result in the drugs themselves being cheaper for seniors. So that's something Democrats have been talking about for a very long time. The other key health care provisions in the bill, one— is an extension of the enhanced um, Obamacare uh, subsidies, which Democrats initially increased the amount of the generosity of the subsidies for people on the on the Obamacare exchanges, roughly thirteen million people, those more generous subsidies were set to expire right before the midterms, which would have been a political disaster. All of these people losing their health care benefits you know, weeks before um, the midterms so that 's now extended out for three years and then the other big piece of it is a uh, is a price cap on insulin for Medicare beneficiaries. Um, Republicans successfully stripped the attempt by Democrats to um, put a put a price cap on on insulin um for people who buy who have private insurance, but they, they were Democrats were successful in the insulin price cap for Medicare beneficiaries. So those are the three big health care components. That said, you know, as you mentioned, there's there's tons of things that they're not doing, you know, even on health care. Democrats, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and others wanted to extend. Uh, and the White House was behind this plan, wanted to extend vision and uh, dental hearing benefits for seniors on Medicare. Currently, millions and millions of seniors do not have the ability to get new eyeglasses or get dental help, but that failed. And I think even more importantly, after Obamacare was passed, the Supreme Court struck down a provision that essentially means that people in particularly poor states controlled by Republicans do not have access to the expansion of Medicaid, the health care program for the poor that Obamacare was supposed to initiate. Democrats, including Raphael Warnock, the senator from Georgia, had made that a top priority to deliver these health care benefits, you know, health insurance for poor people in, in these particularly southern states. That also failed.
3: These are states where the governors and the legislatures block that expansion, right?
1: Correct. Uh, And that's tens of millions of like some of the poorest people in the country who are not going to benefit from something that Democrats have been campaigning on doing for a very long time.
3: You know, earlier we talked about how this bill is going to be collecting new taxes from wealthier companies and individuals. Does the bill do anything regarding tax enforcement or anything else regarding taxes that we should know about?
1: Yeah, this is an I, another area where you can point to how Democrats fulfilled some of their key pledges, but tremendously fell short in others. Kirsten Sinema, the senator from Arizona has consistently blocked almost all of Democrats' proposed tax hikes. The one that they agreed to is still significant, however. It's a 15% minimum tax on corporations with over a billion dollars in annual profits. The way this tax works is that there are dozens of Fortune 500 companies every year that pay sometimes as little as 0% on on their federal income taxes because they claim deductions that allow them to zero out their tax liability. This bill says there's going to be a limit on the ability for corporations to do that. You cannot go below 15% on your tax rate. And that that's probably the the biggest tax generator in the bill. There are some other tax provisions that got included. The, the second biggest uh, tax provision in the bill is an $80 billion increase for the Internal Revenue Service after decades of cuts led by Republicans. That's going to improve customer service, but it's also going to lead to higher enforcement going after tax cheats in the 1%. The IRS has said very clearly that this provision will do nothing to increase audit rates for the middle class, so we'll have to see if they stick by that. The last and third tax provision that, that got through was a 1% tax on companies repurchasing their own shares as a way to enrich shareholders. This is what's known as a buyback tax. This has been a, a area of concern for Democrats for some time because rather than invest in their wor- in higher pay for their workers or in R&D or new investment, a lot of companies have, have flush with cash taking that money and bought back their own stock, which drives up the value of their stock and enriches their shareholders. Republicans say that all these measures will discourage investment and lead, even if it doesn't directly hit uh, middle-class families and their tax return, it will lead to slower economic growth that will hurt middle-class families and their jobs.
3: And just like Senator Joe Manchin exacted a compromise in order to get his support did Senator Kristen Sinema exact any sort of compromise on this bill regarding taxes?
1: Yeah, in addition to ruling out all of Democrats in the White House's proposed tax hikes on wealthy investors, large inheritances, large corporations, large individuals, you just go down the list, she opposed all of that in favor of this this minimum tax that I just explained. Cinema at the last minute also resisted and blocked Democrats' efforts to close what's called the carried interest loophole, which allows um, private equity managers to essentially claim a much lower tax rate than they would if, if they were being taxed as you or I would on our ordinary income. In a statement, Senator Sinema said, quote, we have agreed to remove the carried interest tax provision subject to the parliamentarian's review. I'll move forward. This follows speculations about whether she would support the bill and what appeared to be a lobbying effort from Senator Joe Manchin. Secondly, she also prevented um, the minimum tax that I was explaining from applying to private equity firms. Sinema said that as written, the bill would hit the subsidiaries of private equity um, companies, that um, is something that other Democrats said will only result in very large private equity companies like Carlyle and Apollo, these private equity companies with hundreds of billions of dollars in assets, that those companies will now get off and escape the minimum tax. That's another thing we're going to have to watch very closely because if it turns out to be the case that these very very large firms are exempted from the minimum tax as a result of what cinema did there's going to be I think very legitimate questions about whether this was mishandled.
3: So the way this bill was named and pitched, you know, the inflation reduction act, does it actually reduce inflation?
1: So the nonpartisan estimates that uh, have come out that we've looked at project that inflation under the bill will marginally increase in the short term because you're spending more money on health care. You're spending more money on on these other subsidies that could drive up demand in a way that leads to higher inflation. That said, I think that this is a pretty small part of the bill. I know it sounds ironic for the Inflation Reduction Act to not be necessarily evaluated by its impact on inflation.
3: It's a branding problem.
1: It's a little bit of a branding problem. And also, to give the Democrats a little bit of credit, um, what I would would say here in part is that the bill is premised on the idea that we are going to fundamentally transform the basis of energy for our economy— And how anyone, and I know a lot of these budget analysts, they're very smart and their attempts to map out the impact of this on inflation are sincere, but I think we should be a little circumspect about our ability to project exactly what that kind of reordering of such a fundamental part of our economy could mean for consumer prices. If you and I are able to put solar panels on our house more readily and we're able to drive EVs and not pay for gas... We could be changing the way that America powers itself, reducing our dependence on buying foreign, foreign imports, and the idea that anyone could precisely predict when we had this enormous unforeseen shock in Russia that led to a spike in consumer prices, we don't, we don't really, I think we don't really know exactly what will happen, and, and being uh, a little humble about that I think is also worth doing.
3: Jeff, I also saw that you're putting a call out and asking people what questions they have about this massive piece of legislation. What are some of your most asked questions?
1: I think people are tremendously curious about how they could benefit from this switch to this new energy economy. And it's kind of interesting to see, you know, when I tweeted that there's hundreds of people trying to figure out, you know, I've, I've been concerned about climate change. I want to lower my carbon footprint, but I don't know if it's economical. I don't know if it's efficient. I don't know if it's within my family's budget. And so this bill is getting people to start thinking about that in a more serious way maybe than they ever have before, because maybe now the, the numbers work out just a little bit better, and maybe that will push them to change and to, to put that solar panel on their home that they've been meaning to get around to. Obviously, if there's implementation problems or this is not well crafted, people could get discouraged and this could be a, a huge problem. But if it's successful, it could, it could um, you know, really impact millions of people very directly and be something we look back on in 20, 30, 40 years as the moment America really started to get serious um, about making this transition to a, a, a more sustainable economy.
2: Thanks, Jeff, for your time.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Jeff Stein is the White House economics reporter for The Post. He spoke to my colleague, Alahi Izadi. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnik. After the break, we'll dive in deeper on one piece of technology that this legislation is going to subsidize. And it's something that you could easily add to your home to make it more environmentally friendly. We'll be right back. now, one more thing about one specific way the Inflation Reduction Act helps fight climate change, by subsidizing in-home heat pumps. If you don't know what a heat pump is, that's okay. I didn't know what it was either. The name is confusing because it actually
0: cools your house. A heat pump is essentially a two-way air conditioner. Basically, in the summertime, it takes warm air from inside the house and puts it outside. And then in the wintertime, it actually takes heat energy from outside. Even though it's cold, there's still heat energy outside and captures that heat energy and brings it inside the house to heat it. So it's basically one unit that can serve the purpose of both heating and cooling.
2: That's Pranchu Verma, an innovations reporter for The Post. He was reporting on heat pumps last month when heat waves were rippling across Europe and much of the U.S., This new legislation that we've been talking about has a provision that would offer rebates to subsidize the installation of heat pumps. These heat pumps cool your home like AC does in the summer, and they heat your home more efficiently in the winter. So they ultimately decrease your energy costs. But the problem is to install them is pretty pricey.
0: There is an upfront cost to installing a heat pump in your home that can be significantly more than just buying a single AC unit or a single furnace unit. You know, these things can cost upwards of 10, 15, 20,000 maybe depending on the type of heat pump you use. So, when you think about it, when you really buy an AC unit or a furnace, when do you really buy it? You buy it when your current one breaks down most often. And so you need to do something in an emergency. And so when it's an emergency, cost is a big, important issue. And then second, when it's an emergency, you really focus on what your contractor or maintenance guy tells you to kind of get. And heat pumps have just never gotten, in the United States specifically, a lot of traction with these contractors and maintenance professionals because they've never been really popular. They've really, the technology only really got kind of good about a decade ago. And so you just have not seen the building industry really kind of adapt this type of technology for more widespread use. But with the subsidies and in the Inflation Reduction Act,
2: heat pumps could be more accessible. Previously, the government offered $600 to people installing heat pumps in their home. Now, they can get an upfront rebate of up to $8,000. In other countries, investing in heat pumps
0: has already made a huge difference. 90% of Japanese households use heat pumps to both heat and cool their homes. And that, not alone, but that has been a crucial reason why, over the past decade, electricity consumption has dropped over 40% in Japan. So it's played a very significant role there. You know, we don't really think about changing up the way that we kind of live our household on the most part. There are people, you know, obviously throughout the country that think about how to be climate friendly. But, you know, for the average individual, that might not be top of mind. And so it feels like when you have solutions like heat pumps, you need to make sure that You make it as easy and cheap to get for people because otherwise it's really hard to make people change behavior on basic core things like heating and cooling your home.
2: Bronchu Verma reports on innovation for The Post. This segment was produced by Natalie Bettendorf. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
4: Hey, this is Christina Quinn.